Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Prentice. I'm the pastor here at Bethany West Seattle. Uh, and we are so glad uh, to have you here. What an incredible day. The sun is out. Can we praise God for that? Okay. Uh, and I'm just excited to be here. We continue our series on uh, the study of Philippians. Uh, and I just have to tell you, Philippians is one of my all-time favorite books of the entire Bible uh, because it speaks about this, um, this joy that transcends all understanding, this joy, this peace, this confidence that in situations that we shouldn't be having, in a weird way, we, we have, uh, and that's through the cross of Jesus. And we'll be, we'll be talking about that. Uh, and this morning, it, it's a little, I don't know if it's coincidental or if it's a God thing. I know that this week has been tough for a lot of people. Doesn't matter what side you're on, doesn't matter your background. This week has been tough for our, our nation, our country, as uh, it's been a bit divided. Uh, and this sermon was planned weeks ago, uh, and it's about our citizenship. It's our citizenship in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God alone. If you are a believer of Jesus, if you are a follower of Christ, you belong to no other kingdom, no other affiliation, first and foremost, than the kingdom of God. For some of us, that's hard to hear. But that's the reality of the life that we've called, been called to. And so we'll get into it. Let me just pray for us real quick. God, thank you so much. For who you are. God, thank you that you have pursued us and you've adopted us into your family so that we will be children of you. And may our loyalty, may our allegiance to be that in that and that alone. Thank you for your provisions. God, we pray for our friends down in Southern California with the, the fires and the mudslides and deaths and injuries and lost people. God, would you just, again, somehow bring peace into that situation? Will you bring comfort into that situation? Will people know and see and believe that you are at work, even if they can't visually see it? And then we pray, amen. Amen. So today, again, we're going to go through Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 to 30. Uh, and the three things we'll talk about is the background, the context, which is important for us to, uh, to really hear and to learn, to understand what Paul, the writer, is trying to say. We'll talk about this idea of citizenship and courage. So, so context, citizen, and courage. So growing up, uh, I grew up in a very Korean, I talk about this a lot, Korean-American uh, Home. Well, really, I myself grew up as a Korean American, where my family was very much Korean. They, they immigrated here before, before I was born, but they were born and raised in Korea with Korean values, Korean language, Korean food, Korean everything, and that's the home that I was born and raised in. As a matter of fact, surprisingly, Korean is my first language. Uh, and, but growing up, it was difficult to be considered Korean-American because when I was at home, I was very much Korean, but when I was in school, uh, out, you know, in my classrooms, I was American. I had to speak English. I had to, you know, get to know kind of, quote-unquote, the American culture. 
uh, I had to unlearn or not do some of the behaviors and the attitudes, the things of my house, and kind of assimilate to, to the school and to the people that I was with. And so when I would come back home, I would have to abandon that, and then I would have to become Korean again. And so being Korean-American, growing up, as many of you guys know, some of you guys are biracial, some of you guys may have two different cultures, know that sometimes it feels like we're going through some kind of identity crisis because we don't actually know which household that we actually belong to. And, and that was kind of my story growing up. Shoot, that's my story today. Uh, yes, I am Korean and American, but what does Korean American actually mean? I mean, we do things so differently. I remember, uh, you know, growing up, you always had to take your shoes off before going to the house, right? Like some of you guys, maybe it's not just Asians or Koreans. A lot of people do that. But my parents were so strict on that that if I had to go back home uh, inside to grab my keys or my wallet, I would literally crawl on my knees so my shoes don't actually touch the floor. And then I'd go to my friend's house for dinner. He's like, come on in. I'm untying my shoes. And they're like, what are you doing? Just come in. And, and to this day, it feels so weird for shoes to be on carpet. It's just a weird feeling for me. I remember going to the dinner table at my parents, or, you know, with my parents and my family growing up. We would eat dinner, and I would try to, you know, spark conversation. And my dad said, Eating, or, or the, the, the table is for eating, not for talking. And I was like, oh, okay. Then I'd go to my, parent, or my friend's house, and I would have dinner there. They would say, oh, well, how was your day? And I was like scared to speak. Like, oh, is, is, this, is this okay? Can, can I talk? And so all these, like, which one am I supposed to do? I remember when I would get in trouble, which was very rare, whether, oh, what's, what's so funny? Uh, I, I would get in trouble, and, and my dad, or and I would look at my dad, and, you know, as he's talking to me, and, and I would look at him out of respect, and he would look at me and says, why are you making eye contact with me? You're in trouble. And so I have to put my head down. You know, when I go to school, you know, teachers would say, look at me when I'm talking to you. Okay, I mean, you can understand, like, am I supposed to look at you? Am I not supposed to look at you? What am I supposed to do? There's this identity crisis that, funny thing is, we all experience. Maybe not it's because of your experience. Maybe it's not because of your race or, or, or your ethnicity. But because we all belong to a certain group. I mean, we all do. We've all even wrestled with this idea of identity and, and where and who we belong to. Again, maybe it's not your ethnicity. Maybe it's your religion. Maybe it's your political affiliation. Maybe we've attached to ourselves to, to a group. I mean, we all have. Essentially, we would call that a tribe. We all belong to a tribe. And it doesn't even, it doesn't even have to have this official affiliation or participation. It can be ideas. We belong to the conservative group, the liberal group, the pro-choice, the pro-life, uh, the, the weightlifting versus the yoga group. Which one are you? What team are you? Are you a Seahawk or are you a 49er? If you're a 49er, we'll be extra praying for you. You know, are you a mariner? Which one? I mean, we all affiliate ourselves and attach ourselves to a group, to a team, to an idea. I mean, in fact, I lived, you know, 10 years in Southern California. I learned a lot about street gangs. I mean, gangs, they, they affiliate to their neighborhood. And with the injustice around, like, they, they protect their neighborhood the best they know how. And that's their gang. And that's, that's what they do. You know, there's different groups where, you know, I had, I had pizza last night. 
and I was challenged because I put pineapples on my pizza. Apparently, there's two different groups, ones that believe that pineapples belong on pizza and ones that do not. And I would say they absolutely do. (laughs) We all belong to a group, to a tribe, and many of us, we live, we live, and some we die by the rules and the way of life of that tribe. I love what Seth Godin says. He's a, he's a business leader, an author. He says this about a tribe in his book called Tribe. A tribe is a group of people connected to one another, connected to a leader, and connected to an idea. For millions of years, human beings have been part of one tribe or another. A group needs only two things to be a tribe, a shared interest and a way to communicate it. Easy. So, therefore, we all belong to it. What what tribe do you belong to? We all do. And and in Philippians, what Paul is speaking of is a tribe that he belongs to. In what Ashley just read, we have to give a little bit of context. Paul was in prison when he was writing this letter to the Philippians, to the church of Philippi. He was in a Roman prison around 60 AD. And what we have to know about Philippi, this is really important, is that Philippi uh, in ancient Macedonia was actually a Roman colony. Uh, and, and it was a very significant Roman colony where all the uh, higher-ups and anyone that was anyone around Rome, the officials, the leaders, they actually lived in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony. It belonged to Caesar. And, and it was a hot spot. Uh, for a lot of people, there was a lot of commercial, well, there was a lot of trade. There was a lot of things that were happening in Philippi. As a matter of fact, Philippi is known as Little Rome. It was Little Rome of the ancient Near East uh, in the first century. And, and Caesar was at rule, and not only was Caesar at rule, but Caesar was the one to worship. And so anytime when Paul talks about this idea of Lord, that Jesus is Lord, the Greek word for Lord is kyrios, uh, literally meaning the one we follow. And, and at this time, in 60 AD, in the first century, Caesar was considered kyrios as Lord, the one that people should indeed follow. And yet when Paul comes in and says, actually uses the same word, kyrios, to Jesus, all of a sudden, that changes everything. All of a sudden, that's blasphemy. All of a sudden, that gets people's attention because Kyrios belonged to one person only, and that was Caesar. And yet Paul says, Jesus is a true Kyrios, Lord. Now, as, as, uh, as Philippi was a Roman colony, those that lived in Philippi, you had two options. Whether you were a Roman, whether you were a Jew, whether you were a Greek, uh, whether anything else, you had two options. One option was follow the leader, Caesar, as Kyrios, and if you did that, you would have a lot of benefits. You'd be treated really well, even if you weren't a, a, a Roman. And so a lot of people, why, why wouldn't you, would submit to Caesar's authority, abandon their own worship, whether it was Judaism, Christianity, whether it was, a, a Baal, was somebody else, they would abandon that to follow uh, Caesar as curious as Lord because they knew as long as you acted like a Roman and followed the Roman rules and Roman orders, 
then you'll be treated fairly and well and from the Roman soldiers and the government. That was choice number one. The second choice would be, no, you refuse to follow Caesar. You, you refuse, though you're in a Roman colony, to submit to Roman authority. Well, then you would be uh, outcasted. Then you'd be marginalized. Then you'd be treated like second-class citizens. You'd be higher taxed. You could even experience violence. You'd be shunned by the majority. And a lot of people, again, not just Christians, but Jew, the Jews and the people of the other worship, they, they decided to take this path to not follow Caesar. And here in that context, Paul says in verse 27, the word only, it's his Greek word, manon, means just one thing. It's an emphatic word, manon, just one thing, Paul says. Essentially, Paul is saying, if you hear just one thing that I'm saying, I want you to hear this. I just want you to hear this. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. Whatever happens, just conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's the only thing right now is important. That's what I want you to hear, Manon, very emphatic. And I want to direct us to that verse, 27. Whatever happens, listen to this, whatever happens... He says, conduct yourselves, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of. Those are several words. That's like eight words. But in the Greek, it's just one. If you, if you go to like a, a Greek dictionary, even if it's online, and you highlight that whole sentence, the translation will pop, pop up with one word, several words. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of is one word. It's the word polutomai. And it just means as citizens. As citizens. The Bible, the translators, they all did us a huge favor by kind of translating it for us in a way that's more palatable and for us to understand. But those eight, nine, ten words, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, is just one word, polutomai, which comes from the word polis, which means city. Uh, and we actually get the word politics from polutomai. And it literally just means Live as citizens, to live at, to be citizens. And so if you had to put that actual word in the sentence, it says, listen to me, Manon, one thing, if I want you to hear anything at all, it's this. Be citizens worthy of the gospel. Be citizens worthy of the gospel. And people in this context knew exactly what citizenship meant. It wasn't this mystical, it wasn't this esoteric idea of, yes, I belong to the city. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm a citizen of God. Yes, we, we use that language. We say that, and it sounds great, and it's true. But to the first century people, that actually had substance, that had meaning, because for them, the word citizen, so the word polutomai wasn't just a spiritual word. It's used all over the Bible to to indicate which tribe, what group you actually belong to. I mean, for lack of a better word, in the purest form, it was a political word. You belong to a particular area, region, leader. Polutomai. Be good citizens worthy of the gospel. 
This was mind-blowing for them, for many for, to, to hear Paul say that. Because they understood this idea of citizenship. Well, I, I, know what, I know where my citizenship is at. It belongs with Caesar, with the Romans in this Roman colony. And as long as I live and act and do right in the eyes of Caesar, then I'll be okay. Or on the other side, no, I'm not with Caesar. I know my life is going to be you know, treated like second-class citizenship. Like I know I'm not going to be treated well, but I'm not going to bow down to Caesar. My citizenship is in my own faith, whatever that might be. And Paul comes in and says, you know what? You guys are both wrong. Your citizenship as followers of Jesus, he says, listen to this, is important. It's to be citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. So just like being citizens in in other countries or nations or, or groups or tribes or whatever it is, there's actual expectations in the way you live, in the way you treat one another, in the way you love one another, in the way you love the leader. It was just as much ethical as much as it was spiritual, not that you could even separate the two. There was actual standards of living. And what Paul is saying is followers of Jesus Christ, we belong to a kingdom that transcends any earthly affiliation. We fully and wholly are citizens of God's kingdom plus nothing else. I want us to hear that. We are citizens of God's kingdom plus nothing. And as citizens of God's kingdom, we should engage our lives. Listen to this. Engage our lives oftentimes drastically different than of our society and culture. This is hard. And it requires courage. This is the context that we're working in. Secondly, citizenship. Becoming a citizen, as you know, means you will do things according to the guidelines of the place that you're a citizen of. And depending on your citizenship, things are done very differently. I remember growing up, my parents were studying for their citizenship. Uh, and obviously, I was born here. I didn't have to do that. And they would actually study American history. Funny thing is, my parents know more American history than I do. And, you know, the laws, the, you know, all these things, the amendments, like, they are, they know way more than me. And I remember they were reading the books. Okay, well, this, and I remember them thinking, wow, this is different. Oh, wow, this is unique. Oh, wow, I've never heard of this before. And, and they would have to go to City Hall or whatever it was, and they would have to pledge their allegiance and say, Okay, well, I'm a citizen of the United States now. I pledge and I vow to live like this according to the standards of being American. And oftentimes for them, it was different from what they grew up with in Korea. And so there's three ways that I would want to point out in the, in the book of Philippians that Paul says that being a citizen of the kingdom is very different than any earthly citizenship or affiliation. And first is this. Citizens of the kingdom see conflict, conflict differently. In a world of uh, violence versus violence, in a world of tick for tack, in a world of retaliation, that's what the world says is normative. If somebody wrongs you, then obviously the, what you have to do is wrong them. If somebody makes fun of you, then you make fun of them. If someone hits you, you hit them back. The whole idea is retaliation and being even. 
Our world, uh, in our society, in our culture, we're obsessed with being even. And so we take tallies of any time someone uh, wrongs us. Or we even take tallies of when someone writes us so we can pay them back. That is a culture and society that we live in. And the kingdom of God sees all that very differently, especially the idea of conflict. You have the right to be angry. You've heard that before. And sometimes you do. You have the, you have the right to, to retaliate. You have the right to be upset. You have the right to do this or that. This whole idea of conflict in our kingdom, in our world, in our society is so different. I remember when I went to Rwanda, and I talk about Rwanda all the time because I, I, love, I love Rwanda, and it was, a, it was an experience that changed my life, changed my life. And if you guys know anything about Rwandan history, in 1994, there was a genocide where one group killed another group uh, within a one-month span of 800,000 people. And some of us, you know, we've seen the movie Hotel Rwanda with the Hutus and the Tutsis. 800,000 people were slaughtered in a matter of one month because of the tribe that they were affiliated with. And even the people that were victims, like their family, not only themselves, uh, but the children who are now grown up, Many of them that I've talked to, yes, I'm sure there's anger. Yes, I'm sure there's unforgiveness. But I met so many people that said, you know what? As Christians, I was around many Christians. My job is to love them and forgive them. That blew my mind. That is radical forgiveness. I mean, I know this is very vulgar and kind of explicit, but can you imagine if something like that happened to you? I mean, the way that people were were killed, were, it was evil. I mean, it was done in the sight of their children intentionally. It was done inside of their, their spouses intentionally. There was many stories where they would say, go to your church because you're safe at church. So then all the people that were going to be killed came to church and they lit the church on fire and killed them all at once. These are neighbors. These are family members. These are pastors. These are city officials. And yet I learned something about this idea of radical forgiveness. I've told the story before, but uh, I was talking with my driver. With our, we had a driver, a van driver, that took us from site to site uh, over in the mountains uh, north of Kigali, the capital. Uh, and he was telling me a story where, I mean, he was just right around my age, and when he was 12 years old, he saw his uh, dad get killed in front of him. Not only his dad, but his siblings as well. Right in front. Can you imagine that as a young boy? And yet he grew up worshiping God, serving an organization called World Relief in Rwanda. And I told him, I was like, man, I, I'll be honest, I'd be so angry, Obviously. And I'd want to retaliate. I'd want to find the people. I wouldn't want to love them back. I mean, now, uh, in 2018, or several years ago, the president removed any attachment. There's, no, there's nothing called Hutus and Tutsis anymore. But if I was a victim, I would say, forget that. I'm going to hate that group for the rest of my life. And yet the driver tells me, he says, you know what, Prentice? I'm a Christian, and I'm called to forgive. What? 
I mean, we have trouble forgiving people that just called us a name. We have trouble forgiving people that may have lied to us. I'm not justifying that. that. That's not cool. That's not good. We have trouble forgiving people because they talked behind our back or they got, that's not good. That, I Don't do that. And yet here's this man who demonstrated radical forgiveness. And it doesn't matter it doesn't matter which party, and I don't mean politics, it doesn't matter which group you belong to. We must speak the truth. We must speak the truth in conflict. Not only is there radical forgiveness that's different from what the world says, in conflict we must speak the truth. We must speak the truth. Here's what I mean. When I lived in L.A., uh, those of you that have lived in L.A. or been around L.A., you may have under, uh, heard uh, of the L.A. riots. Uh, and I've learned a lot about L.A. riots when, when I was down there. I mean, you can see uh, the byproduct of the riots. I mean, it was based all around race. And, and so now when you go to Southern California, especially in the Los Angeles neighborhoods, there's different neighborhoods. I mean, people always say, if you've never been there, people say, man, L.A. is one of the most diverse places in the world. Yeah, it is. But it's also one of the most segregated places I've ever experienced. And so when people say LA is a melting pot, they say, no, it's not a melting pot. It's more like a salad bowl. Because it's so, like you go to LA and there's different, there's neighborhoods for every race, essentially. There's Chinatown, there's Koreatown, there's little Saigon, little Tokyo, little, you know, Nigeria. I mean, there's like little towns for every country in the world. And I remember talking with somebody uh, about the history of how it all started. And, and yes, we, a lot of us, old enough, we've all, we know the story of Rodney King. This man, Rodney King, was beat by police officers in Southern California. And the four officers that beat him, they were acquitted. Uh, and so the, rice, the, 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 the race uh, wars uh, and the riots and the looting ensued after that. What many of us don't know that I later found out was that not only was it a white, whites against black thing, but it was also Korean versus black thing. Because what happened was there was another case, a big case that's not as easily as talked about because of Rodney King, was that there was a Korean grocery store owner uh, in South Central LA uh, where this little teenage girl uh, had orange juice, literally orange juice in her right hand. And they were bickering of whether she was trying to steal it. Who knows? It was just a videotape. And as the little girl was walking away, the Korean grocery store owner shoots her in the back of the head and kills this little girl over orange juice. And then she gets arrested and she goes to court. And as she should be, she was found guilty of the crime that she committed. And her punishment? Probation and community service. Probation and community service. And so that's why these riots ensure, ensued and, 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 and looting and a lot of the uh, African Americans that would come to the Korean community and out of anger, you know, destroy the stores and all that. And someone came up to me, it was a fellow Korean person, came up to me and said, Can you, do you think that's right? 
Do you think that's right? That they would just come and, and loot and just to steal and all that stuff? And, how, and, and, and they also asked me about the conviction. Well, what do you think, Prentice? And I had an option right there. I had two paths. Do I attach myself to my Koreanness and, and say, oh man, yeah, she got, you know, she was house arrest or community service. Man, good for her. I'm glad she got off. I mean, she deserved that. I mean, I could have easily gone that direction. But something compelled me to speak the truth. It didn't matter that it was my personal side. And I looked at my Korean brother and I said, no, that was wrong. She should have been arrested and she should have been convicted and she should be in prison to this day. That was wrong. She did a wrong thing. She should not be defended in such manner. She killed a little girl over orange juice. As people of the kingdom of God, we must speak God's truth. It doesn't matter what tribe you consider yourself a part of, whether it's political, whether it's religious, whether it's whatever it is, I don't know. The truth is truth, and you must speak it as citizens of God's kingdom. That's what we do in conflict. Citizens of the kingdom of God sees conflict differently. Secondly, citizens of the kingdom of God, we see pain and suffering differently. In verse 6, it says, I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Christ. In verse 12, it says, I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel. Hey, translation, in the kingdom of God, even when there's pain and suffering and difficulty and challenges and uncertainties, he says, the story is not over. See, a lot of us, we throw in the towel real early. And what Paul is saying, the, the story isn't over. God isn't done writing the end of your story. So quit. Quit throwing in the towel. Quit giving up. And I say this time and time again. Oftentimes when we, when we write the story of our lives, we like to put a period on it. When God doesn't put a period on it, he puts a comma. Because he's not done writing the end of your story. And, and whatever is part of your story, God uses and in Philippians chapter 1, he says, you know what, brothers and sisters? Yes, I'm in prison. I'm locked up. I'm in chains. And yet the good news is people are knowing Jesus Christ because I have the opportunity to have conversations with them. Can you believe that? In a time where Paul was in prison, he says, hey, guess what? I have good news. People are knowing Jesus. Because of my imprisonment. And he would say, I count that as a win. Our prayer, and my prayer, our prayer should be, God, give me the lens to see what you are doing right now, even in this pain and suffering times. Because I know that you're up to something. It might not be now. It might not be tomorrow. But I know that you're not done writing this story. I tell a story all the time about my grandmother dying. Uh, I, I preached at the, uh, the longest night service about loss. Uh, 
And I remember this was like just weeks after my grandmother passed away. And my grandma was a big part of our lives. And when she died, it was a huge loss to our family and to myself. And I remember going up there, sharing my story, even in tears. After that, somebody walks up to me and says, Prentice, a complete stranger, walks up to me and says, Prentice, I lost somebody very close to me just a couple months ago. Complete stranger. There we were sitting uh, at the Greenlight location on, on, on the, on the, on the uh, stage crying. And he says, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing that. All of a sudden, we, two complete strangers, became best friends. We still talk. We still pray to this day. The story isn't over. Yes, I was sad. Yes, I'm still sad. I'm still grieving and mourning. But yet, there's more of that story that I wasn't able to see that God continues to do. Now I get to use that pain and that suffering to help others. Where, where can you use your pain and suffering? Because God says that God's going to use that for his glory. Pain and suffering does not have the last word. It doesn't. God, give us the lens to see. Because oftentimes we're blinded. We don't know what we see. And what we see, we, we get fooled. I mean, even think about our aesthetics. Even think about the way we judge things through our own lens. I mean, just imagine this. Just, I mean, maybe you've never been to these places. But, but you imagine yourself taking a trip to to Haiti or to an African country and to stepping off the plane and saying, oh man, this place is a, you can fill in the blank. Sure, you can say it's about Asian countries. You can say that's about other countries. And you can say this is a place is a dump. This place is horrible. This place has nothing to offer. And if you say that, I would say that you're wrong and that you're sinning. And I would say it's a good thing it's a good thing that we ourselves, we aren't measured by our net worth. We aren't measured by what kind of car we drive, what kind of house that we have. Because you know what? We would be in trouble. We would be in deep, deep trouble if we were because somebody will always be richer. Somebody will always have a nicer car. Somebody will always have a bigger house. God, give me the lens. Yes, it may look impoverished or this may not look attractive or that might, place might look poor or that place might not be rich enough or big enough but that does not mean that it's not beautiful because in the kingdom of God we are defined with different standards I remember going to Mexico on a mission trip I took students or high school kids I remember thinking man we're going to go in there we're going to build a house we're going to save the day we're going to go home and guess what the tables were turned on us Yes, we went to a uh, monetarily poor village, but man, the joy that those kids had, the love that the families had for one another, the fun that they had. I would say in God's eyes, in God's kingdom, they were rich, and it was beautiful. And though we were the ones that went there to save, we came back the ones being saved from our greedy eyes, from our selfish eyes, into the lens and the eyes that God has given us. Being the citizens of the kingdom, we view conflict differently, we view pain and suffering differently. God, give us the eyes to see people 
places, the world, the way you see it. Pain, suffering. God, give me the eyes to see what you are doing in this. And lastly, I'll say this real quick. Citizen of the kingdom sees life and death differently. We see life and death differently. Verse 21, I love, this is one of my favorite verses. For to me, living, is Christ, living in Christ is dying. For living is Christ and dying is gain. I'll read that again. For to me, Paul says, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which one I prefer. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you, he says. He says, Christ in me is to live, to die is to gain. Because he understands that through the pain and the suffering, through his imprisonment, in his life, he's going to die. But even at death, death is his gain. It's not the end of the story. His physical life is not the end of the story. Because when Jesus returns, we get to live in peace and harmony. And not just peace and harmony as we know it, but shalom with one another, with Jesus. And I hope that's encouragement to you. And sometimes I'm hesitant to preach that because I say, hey, you know what, forget the life, forget, forget all the hardships that you're having, forget all the things about life because we're gonna go to heaven after we die. Yes, that's true. But there's nothing cliche about that at all. There's nothing over-spiritual about that at all because it's the reality. And as I, as I invite the band back up, I'll just end with this. To become citizens of the kingdom, it takes courage. It takes courage. To, to live in God's kingdom, to say no to the kingdoms of the world, to the tribes of the world. And this can be in little ways. When you, practically speaking, when you're in a group, when there's people gossiping, I and mean, maybe this is fresh because... I know that people gossip, and it's hurtful. I've experienced this firsthand. As a citizen of kingdom of God, A, you don't participate, and B, you stand up for justice. You stand up for the people. In a world in this kingdom where money is everything, we stand up in, as citizens of God's kingdom and says, no, we will not live with greed. Rather, we will live with generosity. In a world where we live in a society where we should outcast these people, see lower of these people, shun these people, not pay attention to these people, we step in as citizens of the kingdom and says, you are all equally and, and deeply and profoundly loved, and therefore I love you the same. To the people that are poor, the marginalized, We say we love you and we receive you and embrace you. That is the gospel. That is the reason why this happened. The death on the cross was to make everything uh, an even playing field. And what I love about this kingdom, 
to be attached, to be affiliated with the person of Jesus, his work, his life, his death on the cross, is that it's open and free to everybody. There is no barrier. Do you want to be part of this kingdom? Maybe you already are a part of this kingdom. Are you living as kingdom people? If you look on your, uh, your, your note sheet, here's the response I want you to think about. The response is this. I need to live out my citizenship of the kingdom of God in what? Maybe it's at work. Do people know that there's something different about you? This isn't me encouraging you to bring out your Bible and just Bible thumb people. That's not what I'm saying. But people, do people smell something different about you? Love, forgiveness, and compassion? Do you ooze the spirit of God? Maybe it's in your attitude. I know sometimes I have to check my attitude. Is it with your money? Are you greedy? Is it with your time? Is it with gossip? Is it with people? Let's take an inventory of that. And let's have courage to be citizens of the kingdom of God, which oftentimes will be drastically different from being citizens of this world. Let me pray. God, thank you so much that you've called us to a meaningful relationship a profound and significant relationship that compels us to just live life so differently sometimes. Help us to be brave and courageous to do that. Help us to speak the truth. Help us to live as kingdom people in conflict, in pain and suffering, in talking about life and death. We thank you for who you are. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's continue in worship.